Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I'm Michael, and this is Table Topics number 58, Starting Point. In this episode, Caleb and I discuss gamers' lexicon and what is role playing? What does it mean? How do you do it? Then we move on to different ways that you can flesh out your character at the table and make them more realized, make them more memorable. Uh, we then talk a little bit about starting level and uh, why I like to start games at low levels and Caleb likes to start games at higher levels. And then we finish off the podcast today talking about passive ability scores, specifically in 5th edition, and maybe why you should use them or shouldn't use them, and if you are using them, what that's going to do to your game and how it feels. So here is Table Topics number 58, Starting Point. Uh, Captain Crunch, how are you today, sir? I am very good, uh, Professor Fluff. I, I don't think we gave you a title yet. It's Grandmaster. Oh, Grand. My apologies, Grandmaster. Yeah. Grandmaster Fluff. For for anyone who may be listening, uh, I am. This is not affiliated with the serial for trademark <laughs> purposes. It's a Captain with uh, three Wait, A's and an X. No, no, it's just spelled all the way out because Captain Crunch is C A P apostrophe N. So as long as we just put Captain, we're we're legally okay. My non-legal beliefs. Let's say I am the alleged Captain Crunch. Okay, for, alleged. For the gray be, area of trademark purposes, I am alleged uh, Captain. Admiral Crunch, maybe you got a promotion, or what's like what's what's what right under first mate Crunch? I don't know. Maybe we should just stay away from nautical rank. Maybe that's our problem. <laughs> I mean, we're in a school. Let's 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 remember. So you're, this. you could be professor headmaster Crunch, and I'm Grandmaster Fluff. I like headmaster. I'm a fan of headmaster. It's official, unless unless someone who happens to be listening comes up with a better idea. Yeah, I'm down for headmaster. Okay, so for now, headmaster Crunch. I just think Captain Crunch has a better ring to it. But oh, it does, know. because I love alliteration. But <laughs> I also want to avoid lawsuits. <laughs> So we are here today for what will be Table Topics episode 58. We've got a, a, a nice little docket, I think. I think we've got some good stuff we're going to talk about. But before we get into that, uh, we do want to uh, go, do a couple of shout-outs. Uh, first of all, we want to give a shout-out to our newest patron, uh, Scott H. has recently found us, has been listening to some episodes. He's commented a couple times on the website, and he has joined our Patreon campaign at the sophomore level. So, Scott, thank you so much for being a listener, first of all, and then secondly, uh, for giving us some money to help us buy cool things that will make this podcast bigger and better, hopefully. Uh, I also want to give a couple related shout-outs. One to Josh, our friend uh, Josh over on the Cthulhu and Friends podcast. He tweeted the other day that uh, he thought that we didn't have enough reviews and ratings on iTunes, and within like 24 hours we had two more. So I don't know for a fact that they're related, but I'm thinking that they are. So we got one five-star rating, no review. We got a second five-star review from Ty Prunty. Uh, I believe this is still the, the Ty Prunty or Prunty that sent in some questions for our Mike Olson interview. So Ty, thank you so much for a, again being a listener and uh, writing us a review because that will help us in the iTunes algorithm and get us maybe on more people's lists. So with that out of the way, the last thing I wanted to mention is the Amazon campaign that we have going right now. This is a way for people to support us monetarily without actually spending any more money. And it's already doing a lot better than I expected, so that's a great thing. 
So as we write reviews for board games and RPGs and that kind of thing, we're going to start including a link at the bottom. So if you're interested in buying something that we review, you can do so. But there's also a, just a generic Amazon link on our webpage. So if you go to the RPGacademy.com, on the top right there's a little area that says Community and Support. The top link is Amazon.com. If you A, clear your cookies, and B, hit that link, it takes you to Amazon. And at that point, everything's the same. Anything that you would normally buy from Amazon, if you happen to buy after you've gone through that link, we get a percentage. Please, uh, especially as we head into the holiday season, if you're a big Amazon Christmas shopper like I am, think about us. Again, it doesn't cost you any extra just going through our link. But all that out of the way, we're going to get into today's episode. We're going to start with our newest segment, Gamer's Lexicon. So Caleb, also known as Captain slash Headmaster Crunch, what is our lexicon phrase, topic, idea, item, term for the day? Thanks for that wonderful transition, Michael. That was so smooth. That was a great introduction. That's uh, that's what I'm best at, Grandmaster Fluff and his segue. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Man, I just don't have a response to that. All right, so Gamer Lexicon. Uh, today we're going to be talking about answering the question, what is role-playing? Uh, now, for everyone listening, just as a note, with Gamer's Lexicon, we're taking a step backwards here. We want to break down the terminology of the game and answer questions and phrase things for a, a brand-new player, for a beginner. So for the experienced players out there, you know, send some questions in, send some topics in. We're take, we are taking a pause here to go backwards and start from the ground up for everybody. Now, that doesn't mean you should skip this part of the show, because first off, then you miss a little, a couple minutes of, of hearing us talk, and that's just no fun <laughs> uh, for anybody. Um, but primarily, even as an experienced person, going back to the basics is always important. And I think a lot of times we can get wrapped up in knowing what we know and forgetting some of the things we've learned along the way. So, going all the way back to the very, very beginning, what is role-playing. So if someone walks up to you at work, hey man, what do you do? Oh, I play D&D on the weekends. Well, what's that? It's a role-playing game. What the hell is role-playing games? How would you answer that question, Michael? Well, I've had that question come up, as I, I think I've mentioned within a few recent episodes, I have a sort of a friend that has shown some interest in role-playing games. As uh, Seth from of Dyson Men would say, she is die-curious. <laughs> and uh, she's not she's not ready to commit yet, but she's asking enough questions that I, I know that she wants to. And uh, what I've told her is that role-playing games are a cooperative storytelling game. And there are some that do more cooperation and others that do less. But at the end of the day, one person runs the game generally. I'm, I'm speaking 90% of RPGs. I'm sure there's some out there that are DMless. Uh, but in most of them, my experience, one person runs the game, whether they're called the keeper, the storyteller, the dungeon master, the game master, and their job is to create scenes that the characters react to, the characters being the other players at the table, the, the, their representatives in the game, mostly known as PCs or player characters. So you play a role in this game, you're a character that you've created, and you interact with the scenes and the environment and the other people that the game master populates. And you try to do that based on the character you've created, not necessarily on yourself. So Michael, being a near 40-year-old man who's married who has two kids, if a bunch of zombies were to attack me right now, one, I'd probably die. But two, I would probably run away. My avatar in this game who 
you know, might be a, a small town sheriff with a grizzly beard and one hand at this point in the comics, I think, I'm probably going to pull out a revolver and shoot one of them in the head. So when I make decisions in that game, when I'm presented with a zombie, I'm trying to act as my character would, not as Michael would. Okay, that's a great explanation. Let's sum it up, because that's <laughs> what we do on this show. <clears throat> to answer the question, so, what is a... So your name should be Captain Summarizer. No. Sergeant, no. Sergeant Summarizer! Damn it. I like that. But I don't at the same time. Maybe that's my title. Maybe maybe I'm I'm Headmaster Crunch, but my title can be Sergeant Summarizer. That's gonna be hard to get on a business card. That's a lot that's that's extra money. You have to go to the back. To... It likes to wrap around. I'll just need a bigger business card, that's all. <laughs> You'll get the iPhone six phablet version of business card. Yes. It's like a three by five. Exactly. With 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 uh with an audio link embedded of the show. Oh yeah. You actually open yours like a one of those greeting cards and it plays a little song? Yeah, yeah, it plays the show. I like it. That's a good idea. Let's let's, let's uh, trademark that right now. Verbal trademark. <laughs> DM! So, tangent aside, to summarize the answer to what is a role-playing game, a role-playing game is basically playing pretend. You are to cooperatively tell a story. One person leads the narrative, but everyone has the ability to add in their ideas and feedback. Uh, you want to cooperate and play off of each other. And in this pretend world, you are not necessarily playing yourself. You are taking actions and acting according to the motivation of a character that you have made up. And the goal here is to complete a goal or accomplish a mission based on how this made-up character would act and think uh, and using the factors of this made-up character's life and story and his or her own motivating factors. Okay. So then the, usually the follow-up question I get to that is, but but how do you do it? You know, like, what does it actually look like at the table? And the way I would explain that is there's generally two, and I'll say two, two B ways that you can role-play at the table. The first is third-person. And that's where you describe what your character does based off the environment and the situation. The, the other way is first person. And then 2B would be a combination of both. So we're going to do a really quick scene. So Caleb, I'm going to give you a quick scene. And you're going to respond in third person. Sure. All right. So you have been negotiating with a shopkeeper. And you've become increasingly suspicious that this shopkeeper is trying to swindle you. Based on some mechanics of the game, you notice that there is someone sneaking up behind you that you think might be someone who's going to try to rob you in the, in the shop. Your character, you doesn't matter what character you're playing, how would you react in third person to that? Okay, so my character would very casually drop one hand to his knife and using his peripheral vision when he sees this skulking figure sneak up behind him, very quickly draw the knife uh, without even turning, hold the knife to that person's throat, and then make a very menacing statement to the shopkeep that he's been talking with the entire time. Okay. So the, the interesting thing about that, and that wasn't necessarily the, the plan that I have, but I think it's important to step in here, is that in that case, you are doing things that might involve mechanics of whether or not you are able to accomplish those things, whether it be be menacing position yourself accordingly and that's where the dice come in 
where the dice are usually there to decide who gets their way when there is a conflict of opinion. As the game master, I may say there are four goblins in a room and they don't want you to get to the other side. As your character, you may say, well, my character wants to get to the other side. Rather, we could either just decide who gets their way and you could narrate that and go, well, you know, I'm a fifth level fighter. Four goblins aren't going to hurt me. So let's just say that uh, I take out two. One of them stabs me. I then throw him into the other one. They're all dead, but I've taken a wound. Okay, that's fair. And then we might narrate that out, make it sound kind of cool. But most of the time, especially in the games that we play, like Dungeons and Dragons, there's a mechanic in place that we would actually roll dice to determine how that battle plays out. But in a true role-playing session, when you're not using as much mechanics, it's easier to do all first-person. And that's where you actually embody your character and you do what your character would do rather than describing what your character does. It's hard to do that in combat because you say, well, I, you know, do this, but you're already basically in third person because you're telling me what you did. It's, it's hard to do that. So for, true first-person role-playing is generally interaction at the table from a, from a true role-playing. It's, it's talking in character versus telling me things that might include dice. So, for example, let's say that um, I will be the shopkeeper again. I, I don't have what you have. I, I know you asked for it last week, but it didn't come in. What am I supposed to do? All right, man, listen. I've been to this town a dozen times. I know that you are always the one getting the shipments at midnight. I know you have what I need. So we're going to have a different conversation here. And uh, your friend who's sneaking up behind me, he can go right to hell. So that would be a good example of a first-person interaction that's where you're you're embodying your character and you're acting like them you're talking like them now in some groups you may get very actory and stand up and emote and use props for me we're sitting around my table but i i try to talk as my npcs i'm not good at accents but i do try i try more now than i have in the past because i think even a poor accent at times can help the game feel fun and it encourages other people to try the same which adds to everybody's fun but that's basically that's it a role-playing game is a cooperative storytelling game. One person generally runs it and sets up the, the situation, the scene, the environment, the opposition, and you interact with it. In some cases, it's third person, like you're moving a piece on a board and go, my character will move here and attempt to do something. In other cases, it will be you acting as your person, speaking as your person, and often it's going to be a little bit of both. Absolutely. I think that's a, uh, a very good summary to the summary to the segment. So that was our Gamer Lexicon for this episode. But if you have some concepts that maybe you would like us to cover because you're not sure, or you just would like to get our take on it, please let us know. Hit us up on the comments. Uh, tweet us, Facebook us, that kind of stuff, and let us know. Okay. Well, the idea was we got a, we got a question on the website. Uh, I think it was the website. I've been through Facebook about how do we flesh out our characters? You know, when you're at the table, how do you try to change them from being just representations of yourself and all my characters doing what Michael would do and all your characters doing what Kayla would do. How, how do you flesh them out, make them feel more three-dimensional and three and more real at the table? And at the end of the day, how do you make them more memorable? Because that's what I think of. When I, when I think back through the games that I've played and there's something very memorable, it's usually a character that did something that was just the right thing to do in the moment because it fit their character, it fit the situation. So in general, Caleb, how do you, when you first start creating a character, what process do you go through? And then how do you decide what to play at the table? Well, I, I usually use a, one of two different approaches. Sometimes I will come up with a, a, a character concept first. 
and then go from there. And sometimes I will come up with a, a story concept and try to draw the character out of it. Now with the character concept, since I am more mechanical and tactical and crunchy focused, uh, a lot of times I will start with a an idea of, okay, I want a, a character that can do this in combat, or I want a character who can excel at that type of spell or magic, or I want a character that is just like such and such movie character or superhero. So in that type of character-oriented uh, development, I would start with who the... Not even who, but what the numbers are at the table, what he does, uh, how he acts, and then as I'm developing, uh, as I'm building that character with stats and feats and abilities, I'll I will build and extrapolate a story. Okay, well I'm at the end point of a fighter who is really good with a bow and arrow. How did he get there? Why does he? Why did he take this feat and this ability over that feat? Was that a character choice? Did he get trained by somebody? So I work kind of backwards from that point to create interesting story elements. Okay, I like that. But how does that come out at the table? You've got this elaborate backstory in your head. How do the, the DM, the other players, or the NPCs, how do they know that about your character? Well, I think a lot of times that comes up when the GM asks me to narrate or describe a certain action I take. So in, instead of just saying, "All right, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw my bow and shoot at the goblin, and I'll use my X feat to do extra damage," uh, I could take a little bit more narrative approach and describe the action of my fighter as he draws the bow and he casts his mind back to the training he learned with his bowmaster uh, in his town growing up shooting targets while riding on the back of a horse. I tell a little bit of the story, obviously not derail the combat or derail the narrative that's going on, but just pepper in those story elements. Or in a social situation, if um, maybe if I roll badly and I, I fail my social interaction, I can blame that on something that happened in my childhood. Well, it, it all goes back to that one time that that one merchant screwed me over on a deal, so now I'm just really bad at negotiating. You'll know, bring in those little story elements as I go. I think Fate in particular does a good job of that when you use aspects. Mm -hmm. But I also think 13th Age does that well, and it's something that I want to start doing a better job of in our games when we run that, is that when, you, when I allow you guys to use your background points for checks, rather than just like justifying it, giving me an example of how it works, relates so you're mm -hmm. actually creating backstory well this is very similar to that time 12 years ago when i had to negotiate with the prince from tunisia about camels so that's why i get my plus four here xyz so now we've just created 12 years ago you were interacting with the prince that's something that might come up again you know those, those types of things that build mm -hmm. for me what i like to do is i like to i like to create minor setbacks and problems for my own character and for my own party that really don't add a lot of difficulty, but they add flavor. So part of that could be maybe after a battle, 
I very religiously have to go find my arrows because I have handcrafted all these arrows and they, you know, the, I have to reuse the fletching. Maybe if like we're in the woods and we're running away and like there's an extended chase scene, once we finally get safe, I'm going to pull off my pack and I'm going to start cleaning out all my fletchings because if they have any dirt or debris in them, they're, they won't fly true. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a minor thing that I'm sure the DM never would have said, I'm going to give you a negative two penalty when you use your bow next time because your arrows have dirt in the in the fletchings. But as a character, I may say, oh, I'm very concerned about the fletchings on my arrow. You know, my master made me hand fletch a thousand arrows before I could even pick up a bow. So you're constantly creating these these little moments that are going to make your character... One, and eventually what happens, in, in the best case is that other characters or other players will start doing that for you. When something happens, they're like, oh, no, Michael's bow just got, you know, he got wet. We know we can't do anything until he dries his string out. Or, uh-oh, he dropped, you know, he went down the trap. We can't do anything until he's cleaned his arrows. So at that point, we've built a world that we're all interacting with, and it shouldn't just be my character. That should be everybody's character. They should have something that when something happens in the game, I get how that is going to cause your character to react or something. And again, we're, we're not most of us, uh, you know, actors of any caliber. It doesn't have to be the most elaborate thing that brings a tear to your eye. Just something that is memorable. One of the examples I have here recently, I'm playing a Warforged fighter in a game, and he wants to be a chef. So he, uh, he was the cook in the, the army, and we're using the Eberron setting, and then when the war was disbanded, he was given his freedom. So he has all this interest about food, but he can't eat. Like, well, he doesn't need to eat, so he doesn't taste anything. So a lot of times when I'm doing things, I'm constantly interacting with food. I'm trying to make these crazy concoctions and have other people eat it to see if it's good. I, you know, And it's gotten funny to the point where I'm making like peanut butter and squid sandwiches. Because again, I have no idea of what should taste good. So I'm just trying crazy stuff out and getting people to, to eat it. And since Warforged don't eat, it's kind of an interesting quirk about my character. And the other thing is that he's more interested in food, so he's often forgetful. And uh, I narrated one moment where we were like an hour out of town, and I was like, oh, crap, I forgot my axe. And so it took, it took like 15 seconds of game time, but I narrated that it took two hours because I had to run back to town and get my axe and catch back up. And it got to the point where people would say, don't forget your axe. So like as we would transition from scene to scene, another character would be like, don't forget your axe. That became a thing that made my character unique and stand out and memorable. And that's what I'm going for. I don't, I try to come up with one, two, maybe three quirks or flaws or just something about them that makes me different. And then I just try to focus on those things. So I think what we've, we've both talked about here from different perspectives and different reasons of doing it, we're talking about ways to make this pretend character a little more realistic and a little more unique. I wouldn't even say realistic, because some of the best characters are unrealistic in their exaggeration. I would use the word memorable. But they're they're realistic in the game world. They're not just a generic fighter or a generic wizard. They are the fighter who forgets his axe. But yes, you're right. I think memorable is a, is a better term there than what I use. Because once you've gotten into gaming for any number of years, you end up doing... You end up falling into ruts. You do the same thing. All right, if I'm a fighter, I'm probably going to grab this armor and these feats and do this. And and if I'm a rogue, I'm going to have this ability and this talent and this, that. And wizards, I always love to get acid spells and lightning spells, so I'm probably going to gravitate to those. And you always have fun doing that, but you end up 
every wizard is very similar. Every rogue is very similar. So in order to make the cooperative storytelling narration that really is role-playing a little more exciting, you have to come up with these unique and memorable traits or quirks or a reason for doing something. And even if you don't write a giant backstory for your character, and some people do, and that's awesome. And I'll admit, when I was um, when I was a younger player and first learning, sure, I would spend time writing out a backstory and family history, and not only because I thought that's what you were supposed to do, but because that's how I knew how to connect and build a character. Now that I've evolved a little bit and matured as a player, I can do that on the spot. But I need somewhere to start. So the foundation is that quirk, that unique thing that this guy does that that guy doesn't. So as you said, Michael, you bring it up in the game. It becomes part of what's happening at the table. Other players respond to that, and you start to riff on it a little bit and build it. And from that point of strength at the table, when the game master asks you something very specific, you have fuel for the fire. You have something to answer with. You say, all right, well, I've been playing off this thing with the arrow fletching for so many weeks now. I've got to have a good reason. It has to go back to my schooling. Okay, it was from my master teaching me how to do this, this, and this. And it's very easy to use that quirk as a springboard to a backstory element. Yeah, and I kind of jump it around, but I do want to talk that uh, when I create characters, I'm, I'm – I approach it both ways. There are times where I just want to try out a new class. You know, I've I've really never played a bard in all my history of gaming. I had never played a bard. So when Fifth Edition came out, one of the things I wanted to do was to play a bard. So my my character choice started off bard. Like that was the first thing that I knew. But I like to play against type. That's just one of the things that I like to do. So again, playing a Warforged who's, in, who's obsessed with cooking is a good example of the characters I like to play. So my bard, I made him a half-orc because I thought, well, that's not your usual sort of bard. So he's not the most charismatic bard, but I have a lot of fun with that. So again, that juxtaposition kind of makes him interesting. But it's okay to start with a character concept that's mechanical. You know, maybe if you're playing the Pathfinder game or 3.5 and you really want to have a certain prestige class or you really want to be able to do a certain feat chain, that is perfectly fine. For me, though, I want to build the story of how I'm getting there or how I got there if I started higher levels or how I, you know, or what motivates me because I'm going to get in, I'm going to get more mileage out of the role playing and the, and the backstory than I am just the satisfaction of knowing that if I roll an 11 or higher, I'm going to murder any mf on the on the board. That's not as interesting to me as it is to other players. But that's a fine way to play. It's an acceptable way to play. But I do want to touch on backgrounds just a little bit, because this actually came up on Facebook, I think today or yesterday, on, on the D&D Next uh, Facebook page, or one of them, about how much backstory is too much backstory. I think most backstory is too much backstory, for me personally. What I would say is if, if the backstory that you write is more interesting than the game you're playing, there's a problem. Because you have a lot of freedom to make up any backstory that you want. But think about how the hobbits felt at the end of The Lord of the Rings. If I wanted to play a hobbit and I start the game at the end of The Lord of the Rings, and the, my background is everything that happened till then, it's very unlikely that my DM is going to be able to provide me a story that's half as interesting as what my character has supposedly already gone through. So I'd be kind of bored. So I don't want to have the most crazy elaborate backstory of all this cool stuff that I've done because that kind of sets up the game for a disappointment. Also, I just think it's 
most of your backstory is not going to come out at the table. Again, for me, one, two, or three things I'm going to focus on and try to, you know, hit them over the table over the head with it all the time. If you have 37 cousins and you write a little bit of a brief about all of them, 36 of them are not going to be talked about at the table. You probably have the one cousin, the DM may go, oh, this cousin sent you a letter. They need help. Please go help them. And that's your story hook. So don't, don't overcreate a backstory unless you enjoy it. If you just enjoy it, that's different. But as far as at the table, most of your backstory, unfortunately and honestly, is just not going to play at the table in most groups. It's just not going to come up. The DM might do a good job of bringing some of it out, but it's going to be, you're going to have to do the most work as a player pushing it. And if it's that elaborate, you just don't have that much screen time to, to really make it mean anything. So I would rather write a smaller backstory, leave some wide swaths completely undone, and like Fate and 13th Age, fill them in as you go. And go, oh yeah, I did spend two years at, at a monastery, and that's how I know how to do this. Okay, that's an interesting thing. We just created it, but you didn't have to spend six weeks writing that story and coming up with all these details that are never going to come up at the table. I agree. Uh, I, I think... There is an aspect of time management and resource management at the table, and uh, we are managing our entertainment overall. So where are you going to get the most fun out of? Your focus should be at what's happening in real time with your friends cooperatively telling this story. So pick those key elements, those key moments that are going to factor into your character and focus on them, uh, whether you tie them into... Uh, a, a build choice of, of your class or the weapons you use or the spells you've chosen or whether they're just quirks that come up as you do things. Let those build and be open to interaction with other players and other characters as well. I mean, there's a, there's a difference, I think, Michael, if you and I are at the table and I'm going on about you know one aspect of my character and you give me a couple ideas. That's you and me talking as, as players. Also, on the game, if my rogue is kind of arguing with your fighter and we pull out some backstory ideas that way. So there, there's two dynamics to that as well. So you have to be able to play a little loose. You have to be willing to work with other people on all the levels at the table. But I will disagree with you on one small thing in that sometimes when you are playing a high-level game, it is okay to come up with an awesome backstory of all these epic exploits and battles that you've won. Mostly because in that situation, it's probably a one-shot or just a couple sessions. It's not a long-running campaign. Although if it is a long-running campaign, you want that backstory as a foundation. That's a very unique situation, though. I know you, as a player, don't often do that. I am much more the type to do that. And in those cases, it's really fun if I bring a 15th or a 20th level character to the table to have little notes about, okay, well, this guy was the fighter who single-handedly killed an entire army of goblins. He's the only survivor of the red dragon attack on such and such a, a year that ended such and such a battle. Those kind of elements are really fun to play with. Yeah, I, I would I would actually agree with you that because again I because I just don't ever do that playing a high level character to start with didn't really come to mind, but but that would be that would be a, a logic bomb in my mind is if okay we're gonna start at twelfth level, but you're a farmer at the start, 
no, you're not going to be able to throw down your pitchfork, pick up a sword, and do all the crazy stuff that a 12th level character in any game system is going to be able to do. So in that case, it probably does make sense to have a lot more of a backstory. But even then, I wouldn't write most of it out. I would I would just make it up at the table as we go, and when something became relevant, be like, oh, this is like the time that I survived the goblin, goblin horde, and I was the only surviving member of my squad. So I'm still going to make things up as I go, mm-hmm. but it's okay to have a lot more grandiose background when you're starting off at 12th level. If you start at first level, when you get to 12th level, you have a backstory that was the first 11 levels that you played. Exactly. But if exactly. you're just you know coming off the page, uh, page one, you're a 15th level paladin you probably have seen some stuff that would uh change some people exactly yeah i agree with you there all right so uh you know to the the question the ways that i flesh out a character again i i don't write elaborate backstories i just bullet point i pick two or three things at most that are interesting quirk and easily playable at the table and then i just hit the table over the head with it until something sticks and (laughs) uh and then we go with that all right, so we're going to move on to our second topic, and this uh, is a discussion about at what level to start a PC. And I think specifically we were going to talk about the 5th edition model, where do you skip level 1 and 2 and start at level 3 uh, in a 5th edition game? So I think everyone knows my position. Uh, first level, if you're lucky, maybe zero. Don't push it. Uh, but I think you have some counter-arguments. So, so convince me why starting off at third level or higher for not a one-shot, but for a campaign is, is something I should consider. My reasoning behind wanting to start at a higher level primarily is very selfish. As a, as a game master, a lot of times I feel hampered at the table with a low-level character. Some of the, be some of the monsters and traps I want to use or the dungeon I want to put my players through would just be too deadly for a first-level character. Now, of course, the immediate response to that is going to be, well, as a game master, you need to play for your characters, not for your own game. Don't run a game that you want to play. Run a game that they want to play. And if they want to play first level, then you need to give them a story at first level. And I agree with that. And I'm not saying that I want, just because I want to create a crazy dungeon, I'm going to force my players to play something that will fit that dungeon. But I do think that, in general, the first few levels are just really boring. I think that, as an experienced gamer, we are so used to what we can do, even at third level versus first level, we want to get there. So there's a little bit of anxiousness. There's a little bit of, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm only a first-level fighter. Uh, Okay, I'll just hit him. So there's a little bit of boredom. There's a little bit of just wanting to be better. And, yes, that can drive you into the game. That can drive you into better actions. And I feel like I'm not really making a great point here. You can can role-play first level just as well as you can role-play 20th level. As a game master, I can run just as good a game at first level as I can at 20th level. But taking myself away from the the reality of the game for a moment and looking at the fact that we are adults sitting down to play a game for a few hours, I want to have the most fun possible. And for me, the most fun possible when I'm playing D&D is to be able to do more than hit someone with a sword and die when a goblin sneezes on me. Those of you there listening, you go. 
Caleb's making a sort of a shoulder shrug, like, uh, what do you want from me? Motion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Why am I doing a physical reaction on a podcast? What's wrong with me? <laughs> so I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I, and I think this comes down to play style that, you know, there are groups and there are DMs that the most fun you can have, and that, that really should be the aim of every game that you play is to have the most fun possible. If if that is playing higher level, then of course player higher level. The things that I like about low level is one I'm a I'm a huge fan of the hero's journey. I want my characters, whether I'm the player or the DM, to to build towards something, so that way when they get to the end and they look back and go, wow, we really did a bunch of stuff. And you know, again, I use the Hobbits example again in Lord of the Rings. They started off as zero level farmer folk. And by the time they got back to the Shire after the end of the Lord of the Rings, the movie doesn't show this, but in the actual book, I'm about to spoil Lord of the Rings, so hopefully you've read it. One, they they try to throw the ring away, but it doesn't work. Two, Golem bites his finger off. Three, when the Hobbits get back to the Shire, it's been taken over by some men, some humans, and they are you know, enslaving the populace. And the Hobbits, who are now badasses, kick the crap out of them. And that was showing that through these adventures, they had become warriors. They were no longer the hobbits that they were. These were now warriors. In the movies, they show that by making it look like they're kind of bored with all the stuff that everyone else is, you know, they're, everyone else is in the tavern doing their normal drinking or hobbit stuff, and our characters are like, really? Is this, is this all there is? And that's what I want for my characters. I want, at the end of the campaign, whether that be a 2 level or 20th level, I want them to look back and go, look at how far we've come. And that's the reason why I like to start at low levels. The other thing I like is I like for low levels to create the backstory that most gamers create as backstory. So if you have a dwarf who is always charging headlong into battle, and by some sheer karma luck situation, they keep surviving over and over and over again, that character is going to continue to be blusterous and overconfident and maybe they'll get known as lucky and that will become a thing that continues with that character until it no longer does if they rush into battle the first time and they get taken out by a goblin and they have to be saved by all the other characters well that's going to impact that character as well and maybe they have a fear of single goblins even at 10th level they're like uh you guys get that goblin i'll i'll fight the dragon over here and I just think those moments that are created in the game are better than any moments that you create in backstory. And I like to have more of those. So if you start at lower level, you have more opportunity for that stuff. You make a good point, and I'm not going to disagree with you. I think the, I mean, we just said it, but the, the moments and the story elements that come up and develop at the table are going to be infinitely more entertaining than ones you make up on your own. And my decision here might be a little bit because of my gaming experience. I mean, more often than not, when I'm gaming with my friends in real life, we only have time to play one session. Moving on through a campaign and letting that character develop doesn't happen very often, not because we don't want to, but just because life gets in the way. And a lot of times, if we all bring a first-level character to the table we just feel like we're cheating ourselves because we know in the back of our minds we're not going to be able to see this hero's journey. So we want to do something that we know is going to be fun and maybe a little broken, maybe just more powerful, 
just something that in the moment we know we can really enjoy. Right. However, I will also say that despite my complaining, the first level characters that I have created for your game in what we're doing for our Patreon campaigns, I am having a lot of fun with. But I think that's also because in the back of my mind, I know, or at least trust, that that hero's journey is going to be developing. So I can see, all right, sure, I'm stuck with first level for this game, and I know I'm, I'm a gimp compared to what I want to do, but I also know that within a couple sessions we're going to level up and we're going to be able to do the good stuff. And I'm going to have a cool story to get there. Well, and coming back to 5th edition is I really like the way they've kind of set it up is that you level 1 and 2 are kind of apprentice levels, and it's totally fine to skip those. So starting at third level in fifth edition is is, is an okay thing. And what we've done for at least the first Patreon, actually the first two that I'm running that are fifth edition, is after the first session, we're leveling to level two. After the second session, we're leveling to, le- leveling to level three. And at that point, it's going to slow down and be more of a normal Michael curve. It's not necessarily, I don't because I don't really use XP out of the book. I use story XP. But you still get to experience that introductory level, you get to learn your character a little bit, figure them out, you know, so you're not jumping straight to fifth level and trying to figure out, okay, what meta magic feat do I want to use for this spell and how many sorcery points do I need to use? You're you're kind of teaching yourself as you go, but you're still you're not wallowing in low level stuff over and over. You you get a little bit of taste of it, you get a little bit more powerful, you get a little bit of taste of it, and then you really start at third level. So I'm actually because I mean, it's it, honestly, it's not unheard of in my games to be zero level for several games, and then to be first level for months, and then second level for months. We played the longest game that we've played since I've been in this house. We played for well over a year, and I think we had some people at third level when we stopped, and that was every week. Like I it just, I'm a very slow XP person. That's the type of j- game that I enjoy. But I'm enjoying 5th edition now with the uh, the quicker to level 3, and then I'm going to slow it down. I would have lost my mind if I spent a year at first level. I would have I, I would have just absolutely gone crazy. Mic drop, out of the room, done. Now, of course, that's me saying that outside of the situation. Maybe in that game I wouldn't have cared as much because we would have been having a really good time with the narration and stuff. And hopefully that's the case. Right. Uh, but also, and I think that's just because that's the type of player I am. I'm the crunchy one. I like the big numbers. I like getting the better spells and the better abilities because that's just what I have more fun doing. Sure, I love role-playing, and I love you know, screwing around with the mystery and debating on how to solve a puzzle, and I have no problem doing that as long as everyone at the table is having fun with that and we're just having a good time. Everyone's into it. If, if if only one person is into that and we're trying to force everyone to do that, then it gets a little frustrating. That's a different topic. But right. in general, I, I just like seeing the more. When I play Dungeons & Dragons, when I play any role-playing game, for the most part, I like doing things that are really, really big and epic in feeling. I like the... the the nature of escape that D&D gives us. Not just, okay, I'm going to pretend to be a sword fighter. No, I want to pretend to be a sword fighter that is wading through battle, laying waste to everything around him, and doing all these cool maneuvers and flashy styles of attacks. I want to get to that point. That's what's 
gets me excited at the table. That's what makes me really passionate about you know getting the dice out and sitting down and looking forward to those moments. But that's just me. And that doesn't mean it's right and it doesn't mean it's wrong. If you are like me, then sure, start at a higher level. If you are more like Michael and you want to see that slower development and focus more on story, almost more of a real-time game, not just those big moments, start a little lower and slow down your development. We've said it every single show, have fun. Do what you want to do to have the most fun at the table. And if that's jumping into a combat, and if that's starting as a farmer, who cares, as long as you're enjoying it. And going back to something that Seth said, uh, Seth Plansky, when we did our interview for Dyson Men, is that role-playing games are fun. So if you're not having fun, then you might be doing it with the wrong people. And that could just be that, you know, you, maybe you're running a, you're DMing for a group of table, a, a group of players at your table that don't want to play the type of game you like to run. If you're the player and you're not having fun, maybe you're just not the player for the group that you're in. That's not to say that you shouldn't play. That's saying that maybe you should consider looking for a different group. And I know a lot of times when you play in groups, these are your friends. So if you don't play, you're not playing with your friends. And so that might be a consideration that overrides anything else. But one of the one of the goals of this podcast is to grow the hobby. So mathematically speaking, if you had a table of six people and they all decided to go out and start their own groups, you've taken six people and you've now made 36 people that are playing. That's growing the hobby. So don't be afraid if you're not having fun at your table to break off and try to form a group of the people that you do think would share your interest, and, uh, and you'll probably have more fun in the long run. And you and your friends can do other things together uh, and still be friends. All right, so let's move on to our last topic because we're running a little bit long already, and I, but I want to get this one in because I'm kind of excited about it. I want to see what you have to say. Um, so we were playing 5th edition with uh, Rocky. He's, uh, he's running a, a game for us right now. And uh, one of the things that came up was passive perception, which is basically what, for those of you who do not know, is in D&D, your perception is based off of your wisdom score. And your passive perception is the value of 10, which is basically average on the D20, plus your wisdom score uh, or your modifier. And that gives you a passive perception. So normally... If you're walking through the woods and you want to look to see if you're being followed, the DM will say, okay, give me a spot check. You'd roll a d20, you'd add your wisdom modifier, and you're going to get a number from 1 plus your wisdom to 20 plus your wisdom. And there will be a, a difficulty class where a target number, the DM says, okay, anybody who gets higher than a 12 sees the thing. Well, if your passive perception is higher than a 12, the DM can just say, you see it. You're walking through the woods. You, you have a passive perception of 12 or higher. You notice that you're being watched. And... There's things that I really like about that. One is it speeds the game up because you don't have to stop to have these rolls. And you also don't have those odd situations where the, the DM says, okay, everybody roll me a spot check. Everybody fails. And then the DM's like, okay, you don't see anything. But as a player, you know there was something you were supposed to have seen. And if as the DM it's something that you needed them to see, you're pretty much going to end up just going, okay, give me another roll. It kind of breaks the logic of the game a little bit and it, you know, sometimes it makes it silly. So I like the idea of there being a passive perception score, and, and it does a lot of positives for the game. But it does create some inconsistencies for me, and this is what I was thinking, is if you're going to have passive perception, why not have passive everything? Why not have passive strength? 
And if you're trying to do something that is strength related and you happen to have like you're an 18 strength fighter, so you have a 14 passive per, passive strength, it just happens. You don't have to roll. You just anything that's a DC 14 or less, they do. That's going to fundamentally change the way D&D works and make it more like fate in that your characters are going to instantly be more competent. Because if you roll the dice, 45% of the time, you're going to get a 1 to a 9, which will be less than your normal passive perception. So you will instantaneously be successful 45% more often than you would if you rolled, assuming that your passive perception is average of what you're trying to target. So the thing that the, the, I'm trying to get to this, and I'll let you give your opinion here, is some of the most fun moments for me in D&D is when people screw up and they're reacting to that screw up. That's, you know, when someone fails their stealth check, that usually becomes a cool moment because something happens. If they fail their strength check, it becomes a funny moment because something happened. The game would run a lot faster with passive scores, but it changes the feel of the game. So I just, and I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just wondering what you think about maybe implementing that into our games. Well, I think for the most part, a passive score in the proper context is very useful. The idea in Dungeons & Dragons proper for a passive score, I honestly think started back with 4th edition, but it's probably been uh, a, a table rule or a table concept, a house rule, that people have been using for a while. Slapping the mechanics on it is just a way to put it in the books. Any of us who run a game have kind of just said to our players, okay, wait a minute, what's your rank in this, or, or what's your strength? Okay, yeah, you can just do that, no problem. At that point, we're just we're tr we're just working off the story at that point. Okay, yeah, you're strong enough to do that. Sure, you can do it. So on one sense, I don't think you need a passive strength or a passive reflex. But on the other hand, it's a good rule of thumb to make a judgment call for those story moments. By, t by using 10 as the base. That goes back to an old 3.5 concept, which is still in the game, of taking 10 or taking 20. Taking 10 means essentially doing it 10 times and one of them is right. Or taking 10 minutes to get it right, giving you a plus 10 instead of rolling. Taking 20 means, in some contexts, doing it 20 times until you get it right. Taking 20 minutes or just taking as long as you need to get it right. In some situations, you can use that, quote, mechanical principle. If I'm sitting here trying to pick a lock and I'm in an empty room and there's nothing threatening me and there's no traps, sure, I can take as long as I want to get it right. If I'm in a dungeon and there's a goblin about to kill me, if I'm in a town I'm trying to break into a house and the city militia might walk by, I really shouldn't be able to take ten. I shouldn't be able to take that extra time. But using the passive score as more of a just natural ability modifier, sure, if there was an easy enough lock to overcome and I was so trained as a rogue that I can just pick certain locks almost in my sleep, sure, I should be able just to do that without rolling. This is kind of a gray area. There, there's a lot of good points on both sides. I think overall something like perception or spot is the easiest way to prove the benefits of a passive score. Simply because it eliminates the old great joke, well guys, I think I failed a spot check, what's behind us kind of thing. I mean, order of the Order of the Stick comic 
has used that since the very, very beginning. And it's hilarious every time. Exactly. It's always funny every time, uh, like someone falling down the stairs. I'm sure that joke is much older than Order of the Stick, but that's always a joke I think of. I always think of Order of the Stick when we have this conversation about this stuff. Right. I, I think this is a great tool as a GM because it allows me, when I'm running the game, to say, okay, I have five players, five characters are walking through the woods. Do I ask them all to make a roll and then say, oh, well, it never happened, nothing happened, or if only one, one of them gets it, do I then tell everyone what they saw and then trust that they use that player knowledge appropriately and don't metagame? Do I boil down to passing notes or if we're using technology, send a text message or, or a private message to this person? That lengthens the game and it makes it more... It just, it's, just, it's just wasted time. It, it's just wasted time to say, okay, well, I'm going to pass you this note where everyone's still walking but this one guy saw this one thing, and we now have to kind of stop narration as I'm writing a note back and forth. And 99.9% of the time, the person's going to read the note and go, hey, guys, there's a goblin in the woods. Right. So they're going to announce what the note says. Very rarely do you have a player who will keep that knowledge secret, and usually if they do, they're a dick. But most of the time, there's that's just what's going to happen. So all you did was waste the time that it took to do that and then you got mm -hmm. someone like me who has terrible handwriting so i'm trying to write really fast and then i get the note and they go i can't read this so right. then it wastes even more time right but i think part of it comes down to the narration and, and this was the example that popped in my head that and then this is the concept for 13th age failing forward which i still need to do a better job of but let's say that our characters are in a tavern and a horde of hobgoblins come in they lower their crossbows and they start to fire and so the first thing that the fighter wants to do is they want to flip the table to provide cover. That's a great move. And I could, the DM could say, okay, what's your strength? 18. Oh yeah, absolutely. You flip the table. That's no problem. You've, you've got cover. Good job. Or I could say, well, let's roll. Let's just see, uh, see how you do. So you still have 18 strength, but you roll a two. So you are unable to flip the table. But what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that you failed to flip the table? Because you just didn't have the strength in that moment? Did you not flip it fast enough so that all the hobgoblins got to shoot one time first? I like to think that maybe you ripped one of the planks off. Like, you know, you, uh, and all of a sudden now you're just holding one plank, but the table is still on the ground. Or there's food on the floor and you actually slip. So when you lift, your feet come out from under you. So the way that you describe failure can often create funny and interesting moments that make the game better but there's something to be said the way fate says that you're a competent character and normal everyday action hero type things should happen. Like I can't, I cannot think of, a, of an episode of a movie or a TV show because that's a trope. People bust in, you flip the table. Have you ever seen an episode of that where the table flip failed? Maybe in a Jackie Chan movie. Maybe. But then but something then else he, crazy happened. But then he used that to do something else. Yes. And that's a, that's a great example of failing forward. Um, the the role-playing system, the Feng Shui system, uses that concept pretty easily because that's supposed to be a, a system to play big action movie moments. And when you fail, things still continue to happen. But I, I think focusing on, on the mechanics of things sometimes takes us away from the core of, of the decision, of the core of the discussion. And I'm just scared by talking about tables that the angry DM is going to scream at us 
about not needing rules for a table because that still gives me nightmares. <laughs> yeah, if your fighter wants to flip a table, he can flip a damn table. That's fine. Right. And I don't think that has to do with the stats or the level. That's just, I can flip a table. As a person, me, Caleb, I can walk over and turn a table on its side. I can pick up a chair and move it. I don't need to roll for that. That's not something I have to be a pretend sword and sorcery character to but do. But let's say it's a 20-foot-long banquet table that's made out of solid oak. Could you then? Maybe with some effort, but it's not oh, a guaranteed. Sure, sure. I mean, and that's a good example. I mean, if I'm in a, if I, a kitchen table, I think a kitchen table is equivalent to an average tavern table. Sure. I can flip over a kitchen table. Right. But there's a great story there, too. The fighter says, oh, I need to flip this table. And you say, no. Why? What surprised him in that moment? Was he shocked? Was it really a giant banquet table and he didn't realize it? Was it really bolted to the floor because this tavern is plagued by thieves who take the furniture? I mean, that's a stupid... But that goes back to our early thing about letting the dice create reality. Because you could do that same thing, like, okay, I'm going to flip the table. All right, we'll roll for it. Roll for it. I got a two. Okay, you're unable to flip the table. Well, that's dumb. I'm super strong. Oh, but you didn't know that all these tables are actually connected together. They look like they're separate, but they are. there's a long metal rod, so you'd have to flip over every table, and so that's a DC 30. And that's still a dumb example, but you yeah. could. But rather than just saying you don't lift it, you need to create a reason why and not just say, oh, well, your strength fails you in that moment. Right. I like the idea, again, in my mind, I, I like the idea of him ripping a plank off because then that creates a moment like a Jackie Chan thing where maybe he uses that plank as an improv weapon and it becomes, uh, comes, becomes a funny moment. But I don't know, because, I, I, again, I'm not saying we should use passive abilities. I just think it's a weird choice that we have passive perception and that's the only one because the reason we have that is because it speeds up play. If that's true, then why not do all passions? Because that would speed up play even more. I think because in the other examples, it's a little more abstract. And in any role-playing game, there's a very fine line between the reality of playing a game and the desire to be organically in the reality of the game. And it's a constant give and take. And it's a constant battle to... Of, of suspension of disbelief. So, on one hand, you want to roll for things. On the other hand, you want things to just, you want to be competent enough to do those things. And the reasons go back and forth to both sides of the debate. I'm all for a passive perception check simply because I, I can make more use of it. I, I can, as a GM, it's easier for me to do those random things that people see but of course, I am not so much a slave to the mechanic that I will use that exclusively. If there's something they need to observe in story mode, I'll tell them that. I'm not going to say, well, you know, okay, you failed it, so now too bad you missed this entire thing. Or no one's passive perception was high enough, so you missed this entire thing. You never want to sacrifice story, and you never want to sacrifice an entertaining moment based on the black and white rule that's written. No, I agree. I think I think in the moment I I've I've done this, like I said, without without codifying it. It's something I've done on occasion. If the the fighter wants to flip the table and I haven't decided that there's gonna be hobgoblins run in, what's your strength? Fifteen. Okay, great, yeah, that's no problem. But I usually fall back to is there a price of failure? 
and that's normally when you roll. I just think there's an argument to be said that that's still not always the case, and that you could you could change the the way the game feels, make your characters feel more competent by just letting them automatically succeed based on passive scores, regardless of the outside forces like time effort. If I have an 18 dex, I'm training lock picking, so I have a, a passive of 15 then I should be able to pick most locks like Fonzie, walk up, give it a little tap, and, and goes in. And that's going to create a persona that my guy, I can get in anywhere. So eventually when I get to that lock where I do my little Fonzie move, uh, for the kids who don't know who Fonzie is, I'm sorry, and it doesn't work, then I'm like, oh, crap. There must be something really important behind this door because I can get into most locks. And I, I think it changes the way the game feels, not necessarily better or worse, but it does change it. Right. And I just think that's something you need to be aware of. If you want to try passive perception, there's nothing wrong with it, but it will change the feel of the game. And if that's not the feel you're going for, then maybe it's the wrong idea. Well, I also think based on what you're saying there, it's less about a separate passive thing. It's more just what, what is your actual stat and what's your training. Don't make it more complicated than you have to. If I want to involve this concept of creating more competent characters, don't add another list to their character sheet for them to maintain or for me to maintain as a GM. If I want them to be more competent, I just need to know what their stats are. And I need to say in my head, okay, well, uh, as a, if my dex is 18, I can do this, this, and this. And in this case... As a rogue, he's also, in his backstory, given himself burglary and thievery. Okay, give him this, this, and this that he can also do. So a little bit more work on our side of the screen running the games, but it's really not that much. Because essentially we're just narrating more of the story and making it more entertaining than not being as much of a slave to the dice and what the black and white rules say. So you're doing, you're doing the thing that is more exciting at the table and more entertaining for your players. So my last word on this, and then we'll wrap it up, is if you decide to do passive, uh, passive aggressive, if you decide to do passive ability checks, your characters are going to get used to that. Again, they're going to start to feel more confident. The, the strong guy is always going to be able to do the strong things. The fast guy is always going to be able to do the fast thing. So then it's, it would be fun to put them in situations where they're not able to do the thing they're good at. And that's where that humorous moment could come in. So your fast talker is trapped behind a large door that he has to get down. Your strong guy suddenly has to convince someone else to help him out, and it's a charisma check. And those are going to put you in situations where you still have that moment of, oh, if I roll a one, things are going to get bad here. But you also can continue to have the assumed competence of, of being more hero heroic. Um, so if anybody out there, if you have some opinions on passive ability checks or you've done this or you're against it send us in some comments let us know post them on facebook or connect with us on twitter uh, i think that will wrap up this episode you can give us feedback and comments on our website therpgacademy.com you can listen to previous podcasts on our website and subscribe to new ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a table topic, we'd love to hear it. Email us at podcast at the rpgacademy.com or connect with us. We're on Twitter at the RPG Academy. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the RPG Academy. We also have a Google Plus page, the RPG Academy. As always, thanks for listening. 
And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.